friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, here as always with the good doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And today, we're going to be talking about a variety of conservation topics with our friend Doug Duran. Uh, Doug is a regular contributor to Meat Eater. Uh, he also is the owner of Lone, Lone Oak Industries LLC, manages the family farm there in Wisconsin, and is really just an outstanding conservationist. Uh, coined the phrase, and I, I like it a, a lot. Matter of fact, I bought a t-shirt that says it from him. It's not ours, it's just our turn. And so look forward to talking with Doug. Show sponsor, The Ferminator. Seems like a great time of year to have that as our show sponsor. Uh, Renews Outdoor Equipment. They're the ones that make the Ferminator. I have actually been on site there in Georgia. It's a pretty awesome facility. And with any luck, I'll be dusting mine off this week. I'm a little bit behind, uh, but I hope to get that thing dusted off and do some stuff with it. It's an amazing implement. It breaks up the ground for you with with the disc system, which is adjustable. It will also plant for you. It will call the pack for you. I happen to have the one for the ATV, uh, but you can get much bigger ones. And as a matter of fact, we raffled off uh, the six foot model designed for a small tractor and we sold that raffle out, Mike. So there is a ton of interest in the Ferminator every time we put it out there. Well, from seeing yours firsthand, I will have to say it it is a very useful piece of equipment and I've gotten to see the results and it was very intuitive it was easy for you to use your first year you were actually putting in good plots on technically virgin ground and they turned out great well if i can do it <laughs> and we all know this everybody can do it anybody can do it and so yeah mike made a point to point out there that it was easy to use for me <laughs> and that's true uh very I tried to state that as eloquently and as non-pointed as i could but well, I can see the grin on your face, so you no know, one else can see that. But uh, no, it is a great piece of equipment. And Renews Outdoor Equipment and the Ferminator, they've been a longtime dedicated sponsor and supporter of the National Deer Association. Like I said, we sold out that raffle. Check them out at theferminator.com. I also want to thank folks for a, a very successful NDA Giving Day. It's the first one we ever had. We had that back on May 11th turned out really well. We're going to be publishing some of the outcomes of that here soon. So thank you very much for that. I didn't want to let the show go by without mentioning it. And uh, we just had like a lot of great participation and a lot of support for what we're doing. So we appreciate that very much. Ask NDA anything questions, Mike. I am happy to report that we had excellent participation this time. Good. So, I'm so glad. Don't, no one has to be, our listeners do not have to be guilted. So good job, everybody. Well, well done. I, th- I think like you said, I think that I, I guilted them. And so then I sort of started feeling bad about that. And so now there's no more guilting. We have three and they're good ones and they're all kind of unique in their own way. So let's power <clears> through <throat> them and I'll just read them in the order of which they came in. Uh, this one comes from John in Pennsylvania. And we know John. John is the treasurer of our local NDA branch here. So thank you, John, for chiming in. And I know John's always out there tinkering with food plots. He shot a nice turkey the other day, so he's on a roll. So let's see if we can answer his question. His question is, what are your thoughts or experiences with planning a food plot that consists of winter peas? 
Uh, he's done some things like sugar beets, radishes, um, you know, brassicas, that type of thing. But he's looking to plant something a little different for the 2022 archery season. And so let me take a run at it uh, first, doctor, and then I'll let you chime in. And I'll just say the first thing I want to say, John, is, yeah, winter peas definitely can be good. And I would encourage you and other listeners here to go just search winter peas for food plots. And the very first article that's going to come up is a plant profile from the National Deer Association that talks about winter peas. And that article does more justice than I ever could here in this discussion. But the short answer is yes, you should give them a shot. Mike? Well, I've planted them before. So uh, the NDA article is excellent. So I'm going to have to say yes, first and foremost, defer to that. But from my personal experience, I'll give you two insights. The first one is deer love them. It is the you know, hot chocolate on the vanilla ice cream, if that's what you're into. But what I will say is that you need to plant either one of two things, enough of them. I mean, you almost have to think of them, in my opinion, like soybeans, where if you try and plant a half acre, quarter acre soybean plot, the deer will mow it out and you're, you're left with nothing. So um, you have to, if you're not going to plant them in a large volume, two acres or more, in my opinion, that is, you have to then blend in something that's very fast growing that will protect them while they're young and let them get established so that they'll get you through your hunting season or during the draw time that you're planning them for. Okay. Excellent advice. I've pointed John to some good resources online and the doctor has actual experience, which is better yet. Good luck with that, John. Send us pictures. like to see how those turn out for you. All right, next question. This comes from Nick, another Nick. This is a Nick in Michigan. This is a good question. Uh, he says, uh, on April 29th, he saw a doe cleaning off a fawn that she had just given birth to. Uh, this is the earliest that I've ever seen a fawn. He counted the days back, and he says that it looks like she was bred around October 14th, if he's correct, and you are correct uh, there, Nick. That's uh, about a 200-day gestation period, so that puts you around that time. He wants to know what's the earliest we've ever uh, heard of heard of a fawn being born or ever seen a fawn. And uh, so my answer to that is I have not really ever seen early fawns. I've seen fawns, however, uh, that were very tiny that looked like they were born late. And so I saw one one time at the in October in Pennsylvania that was very small and had spots on it, which is very, very unusual for this part of the world. But in terms of a really, really early fawn, I can't say I've seen them any time before, uh, you know, that first first week of May. How about you, Doc? I can't say that I've seen one, but what I can tell you is that uh, several years ago, back in the back in the '90s, I was turkey hunting. It was May fourth, and I actually found a fawn track in the mud, and on May fourth, which means that that fawn was up and moving around with its mother. So that has to have put it born in. April, but I can't say that I've seen, put my eyes on it, but that was the most unusual thing to the point of where, when you asked that question, it, it immediately came back to me because it was something I was completely startled to see at that date, that early in Turkey season, literally. Yeah. And the doctor and I, we've actually run, run into fawns on the ground in Turkey season. And it's always been sort of the second week of May, actually right about this time of year, you're listening to this on May 18th. And so usually within this time period, it's a fun time to be in the turkey woods because you might run into a fawn on the ground, which is always pretty cool. So yeah, great question. 
Uh, thank you very much for sending that in, Nick. We appreciate it. Uh, the next one comes from Derek in West Virginia. And the first thing he mentions, this isn't the question, but he mentions that he's relatively new to NDA and he really loves the podcast. He listens to Coffee and Deer, of course, and also Deer Season 365. So thank you for that, Derek. And he also talks about uh, having an exchange on Twitter with our Lindsay Thomas, who is uh, editor of Quality Whitetail's chief communications officer here and says about how uh, he was excited to ha be having this conversation with Lindsay. And I'll just tell anybody there, our team is very amenable to that. We are very open to these conversations. And so don't ever be shy about reaching out. We love to hear from you. So do that. Uh, but let's get to his question. He says, it's a question about saddle hunting. And this is, this is one, uh, Mike, you and I are actually qualified to answer. <laughs> so um, not that we weren't on the others, but you know, we have a lot of recent experience with saddles. He says, I'm wondering if you ventured into uh, saddle, type, uh, saddle type tree stand world yet. And if so, what type of saddle are you using? He's just recently started exploring some public land. He wants to hunt from a saddle. He's trying to learn it. Uh, wants to uh, learn a mobile hunting style, which is cool. And so, Mike... I'm going to let you take it first because one of the first things you did when we got into saddle hunting was you tried several different types. And so maybe share with us that path you took and where you've settled now. Settled now. So I, I did a lot of reading on um, the saddle hunter, saddle hunter forum, and I wanted to pick a two panel saddle is what I have um, come to settle on. Now, with that being said, uh, historically, I do have had some uh, low back and pelvis problems. I'm a physical therapist by trade, and you know that required a lot of physical lifting, physical activity, and standing in the tree stand by the end of the season when you actually would alternate between like sitting, standing, side leaning, etc., and so on. My low back and pelvis was was very uncomfortable toward the end of the season, and I wanted to try saddle hunting to settle that down. And sure enough, I will have to say that I've saddle hunted for the past two years to the point of where even in rifle season, I have not hunted out of a fixed position tree stand in the past two seasons. Saddle hunting has been so comfortable for me that I've stuck to it. So I like a two panel saddle. That's a, uh, one that actually fits together. I'm just going to say the name because again, I'm, I'm not on the payroll so I can say what I want, I guess. But um I actually um, have a, a method two, actually I have a method one. I have a method two from Latitude Outdoors. Um, I, but I also have from Tethered, I have the um, Menace, which is for the, the larger guys. I'm not a huge guy, but I mean, I'm like 220 pounds, but I'm a pretty athletic build and I like loose clothes, loose things, especially the one thing I will tell you, I'm sorry for bouncing around because there's so much in regards to saddle hunting, but um, I prefer to by upsized because during November, December, those cold, uh, colder months when you need to be in the stand for longer periods of time, you wear more clothes. And so if you buy a saddle that fits you in your jeans and t-shirt, realize that you're going to have to layer up and that all of a sudden becomes very small and it starts pressing on areas. So uh, I personally size up a little bit and, uh, those are my two choices, uh, for saddles. Um, you know, obviously I like a platform. Um, I like the extra large. I got that one from Timberline. I believe the company is, uh, the mission platform is what I use and, um, lone wolf, uh, sticks. 
Yeah, tro Trophy Line is the saddle platform that you have, Mike, because I have the same exact one. And uh, that's a great description for Mike. I'll, I'll take you through what I have uh, and what I've done. So actually, when I got my Trophy Line platform, I also at that time started out with a Trophy Line saddle, which was fine. It's gotten me through two seasons. I will tell you, it was. It's probably a little heavier than some of the other saddles. Um, you know, a little, a little bulkier. When I say heavier, though, we're talking ounces, not like anything gigantic. But then, um, like I said, it. I've used it for two seasons, and now I've gone to a tethered Phantom, which is just a little bit lighter and a little bit different design, uh, but really functions the exact same way. And so I'm, it'll be my first full season in that saddle here this season. Uh, I wanted to mention the thing about back pain, though, and it, that's obviously the doctor's expertise. But my own experience is that if I sit on a fixed position stand or a climber or whatever, my back will hurt. And it'll hurt throughout the entire season. And I was amazed that when I went to a saddle that I hunt with, with basically no back pain. And you would think just by looking at it, it would be the opposite. You'd be skeptical and say, man, I don't know. I feel like this would be hard on the back. I will tell you that it is incredibly comfortable to hunt from a saddle. And so what I would encourage you to do is get it as soon as possible. And I would encourage you to get out there and sit in it and practice in it. Because the one thing I'll tell you is the doctor and I, when we got ours, we pretty much <laughs> like the knuckleheads that we are, uh, we pretty much jumped into saddle hunting and went out and started hunting because we didn't get them until late. And so our learning curve just sort of had to happen during, um, you know, during the season, which, you know, that's no big deal. Um, but I would encourage you to start early. Uh, also, knee pads are critical. Uh, the doctor just reminded me of that in the chat here. Uh, you got to get your platform, your saddle, and knee pads because one of the more comfortable positions is you're, you're sort of sitting back in the saddle with your knees against the tree. You might think, oh, I don't really need them. I can get away with it. I can tell you that that's not really true. It's very uncomfortable without knee pads. But Mike mentioned the saddle hunting forums. Check that out. There's tons of great videos out there on YouTube. And get after it and give us an update and let us know how it works out for you. Happy saddle hunting. I'm getting excited for deer hunting all of a sudden, Mike, <laughs> this conversation. Yeah. Well, and the one thing that we I will have to say, not to brag, but in regards to being intuitive, if you've been a bow hunter and a stand hunter for years, we both killed deer on the first day that we used our saddle. We did. So it's, I mean, yes, practicing is the best way, but if you're a seasoned hunter, most likely you'll catch on to it very quickly. So who wins the hat? Who wins the hat? That is such a great question. Well, uh, no offense to you, John. Uh, you know, you're, you're close to me. I can probably make sure you get a hat. So you're not going to be the winner today. Uh, so let's go with, I tell you what, I liked both of these questions so much. I'm going to send a hat to both these guys because I can't, I can't separate the winner. So, um, everybody gets a hat basically. Everybody gets a hat. All right. Well, that I, I tell you what, that, that just should get us more questions for the next time. If you're being that generous all of a sudden, going from where, where you started with this, where you were threatening people to where everyone gets a hat, I, I think that um, you're turning over a new leaf, so everyone should be excited. Yeah, I, need, I just need to be a better person. I mean, that's just what it boils down to. I need to be friendlier to our podcast listeners. Uh, you guys that are winning hats, please send me your address, and I will personally walk them down and drop them in the mail to you. So thank you for your questions. All right, Doc, let's go ahead and get into the interview here with Mr. Doug Duren. Uh, after that, 
I want to share a story about my not so excellent adventure trying to get home from Austin, Texas the other day. And uh, we'll give an update on turkey season. But for now, let's go ahead and jump into the interview with our guest, Mr. Doug Duran. to have our friend Doug Duran on with the, on with us today on the Coffee and Deer show. Uh, Doug, you know, he's as I introduced Doug, the first thing that comes to mind is I was typing my show notes up before all these other titles is just conservationist. Uh, when I think of Doug, that's exactly what I think of and it comes in a lot of different levels which you'll hear here on the show. But he manages his family farm in Wisconsin, a lot of conservation programs as part of that. He's the owner of Lone Oak Industries, LLC. He's also a regular contributor to our friends over at Meat Eater in various capacities. And uh, Doug and I also, we had the chance a while back, it seems like forever ago now, but we spoke at an event together in Minnesota pre-pandemic talking about chronic wasting disease. And we're going to talk a little bit about CWD today, which Doug is particularly active on. So Doug, thanks for being on. And why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Well, thanks, Nick. That's uh, really nice of you to say. If I, uh, um, I'm trying to live up to the title of being a conservationist. You know, there's a lot to that, and um, it's very, uh, it's gratifying that someone like you would think of me like that. Um, well, for folks who don't know, um, I uh, live in Southwest Wisconsin in Richland County, which, if you spend any time at all thinking about deer hunting at least whitetails you'll probably have heard of southwest wisconsin and richland county um i manage our family's 400 acre former dairy farm now legacy and conservation property here it's been in my family for 100 and it's close enough to 120 years that it's just easier to say 120 years 120 years and um uh, uh, it's been very uh interesting for me the last 25 years to be actively managing that property at the beginning um, of that period of time with my father uh, running, running the show and saying things like, uh, well, what we used to do was, and um, I have to say that it was very gratifying when my dad um, said to me one day, you know, I know the way things used to be done aren't necessarily the way they need to be done in the future and i appreciate the fact that you're doing that so you're going to be taking this over and so we worked cooperatively on the management of the farm until um really until he died which was now coming on uh, six years ago um i mean heck i'd go and get him and put him in the old truck and drive him around and ask him one thing or another uh, some of the management work that we did in the forest um, one of my favorite memories of him was saying, well, we were doing a shelterwood harvest and we needed to cut trees that he kind of grew up with, you know, there's mm -hmm. oak trees that were a hundred to 120 years old. And he was 92 when he died. And he said, well, you know, I knew needed, no, this needed to be done. I just didn't want to be the one to do it. So, you know, you can kind of understand that when you think about, managing a property and you know the attachment to the land and that was i think that was an important lesson for me to learn too is um understanding how uh how we all you know relate to the land 
I love the tree story. I just was planting some apple trees the other day, and right now they just look like little sticks I plugged in the ground. And I caught myself dreaming ahead to the people that will eventually cut that tree down because it's not going to be me. I just hope it produces apples while I'm still here. <laughs> and I was thinking about my son, and I was thinking about him, if he would have those kind of thoughts when it came to that time. And so for you to share that story is very timely, and it's a very good one. So there, there really is this... I think that's it's one of the many reasons I think of you as a conservationist, Doug, and that is you have these deep feelings and deep-rooted relationship with the land, and that's where stories like that come from. Um, I would say that uh, being a guy who kind of thinks in bumper stickers for some reason or reduce <laughs> real complicated stuff down to simple things that a guy like me can understand, one of the uh, – I, I worked for a number of years um, – well, a number of months, I should say, and then a couple of years um, for a reforestation company. I planted, um, by my calculations, over half a million trees around the country, and some of those are on our farm. And when you're, I'm 63 years old now, and I stand there and look at trees that I planted 40 years ago, mm. and you know, like red and white pines and, and some hardwoods and stuff, and explain to people that's what happens, and um, they're kind of stunned by that. And even seven years ago, I planted some trees with my uh, daughter and my wife and uh, a friend of mine, that's part of a, one of our conservation um, management plans. And uh, my daughter's just amazed. She was 18 when we planted them. She's now 25. And these are white pines that are, you know, 10, 12 feet tall. And wow. it came to me that you plant trees, but you grow memories. Yeah, perfectly put. And, and that actually, that, you're taking me right to where I wanted to go next. And that is, uh, I'm wearing a, a nice a dark blue, bluish gray shirt here that says, has the phrase on it, it's not ours, it's just our turn. And I remember that struck me when I first started seeing that from you. And then I took advantage of one of the opportunities when you were selling some shirts and I got one. And so tell us a little bit about that. It's not ours, it's just our turn. Where does that come from? What does it mean to you? Um, well, back to my father and my, um, my, uh, grandfather and great grandfather, um, the farm has been in our family, as I said, for 120 years, my great grandfather was a lumberman, had a sawmill and actually my grandfather was too. And so our farm that, um, they, uh, my great grandfather bought in, the in the early 1900s, um, 1903, actually. So that's why I'm saying the 120 year thing. Um, they bought for the timber and they carved a farm out of it. So 400 acres, uh, 114 acres of tillable land, uh, 14 of which has been planted in trees since. So now we have 100 acres tillable, which is actually all in the Conservation Reserve Program, 240 acres that's still wooded. And 60 acres that's pasture for a few head of beef cattle that I have wandering about. Well, as I was saying earlier, um, my father kind of put me in charge of the management, especially of the woodland. And we uh, went into a managed forest law program, which is a uh, management uh, program here in Wisconsin that you can get involved with if you're a woodland owner. And we were reviewing a uh, shelterwood harvest that we had planned. Um, Oaks are difficult tree to regenerate and they're a big part of the driftless uh, landscape, but we're losing them. And the 
consulting, or I'm sorry, the, the DNR uh, forester that I was working with by the name of Mike Finley had worked very closely with me to get a professional um, forester in to do a management plan for us and described in that shelterwood harvest. And shelterwood harvest is a very aggressive way of regenerating oak in, in an area. And it's a lot of work <laughs> and it continues to be a lot of work. Mike and I were up there, Mike Finley and I were up there uh, reviewing the marking of the trees and he was sort of reassuring me how this was going to work. And I was pretty confident as we were doing that. And as we were walking out of the woods, he stopped and, and said, you know, let's just hang out here for a little bit and talk. And we, so we started chatting about, about what we were doing. And, and he said, you know, I have to tell you, it's, it's really gratifying to have someone like yourself and your family who's willing to do this kind of aggressive management. So many people want to try to hold a property just the way that it is, you know, and no management plan is a management plan, but it may necessarily not a very good one. And and again, he kind of reviewed all the reasons to try to regenerate oak. And he goes, I just really appreciate that your family's willing to do this. And in that moment, um, I was thinking about my father and my mother and my, my grandparents, my great grandparents. And it seemed as though they were all right there with me. And then I was thinking about my daughter and my nieces and nephews, and we have this succession plan in place. And and I, I, and I realized, you know, I stood on that spot with my grandfather before and he was gone, but that spot was still there. And, and I just said out loud, well, Mike, I guess I feel like it's not ours. It's just our turn. And he looked at me and big smile on his face. He says, boy, that's, that's really great. Where, where have you heard that before? And I said, I, I think I just made it up. <laughs> and he goes, well, you ought to write that down. And uh, so I did. And so it was really started, you know, real small and locally with, my feeling about our, our particular property. And then I started to repeat the phrase and um, I'm a big uh, advocate for our area and the, in Richland County and the driftless. And, and as um, the opportunities have grown for me to be, uh, you know, associated with groups like folks like Steve Rinella and meat eater and, and NDA and Leopold foundation and um, who I've done some work with the American forest foundation um, I started using that phrase in talks and discussions and um, it's really grown and um, it's really gratifying that, man, I, we've sold merch um, all, merchandise for those of you who aren't in the know about what merch is. <laughs> Follow Doug on TikTok about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, TikTok. But anyway, um, you know, in the merch business, I, 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 I started selling merch because we were trying to support this dumpster um uh, uh, carcass disposal program and all the profits from selling the merch went to that and people su were supportive of it. And my God, we got people from all over the country sending us money and, and buying shirts and, and stickers and stuff. And, and all that money folks went right to that program because initially Wisconsin didn't fund um, any of our dumpsters. And uh, I was just kind of trying to prove a point, which I don't know, I guess I'm stubborn and I try to do that. And, um, that money went to that and, and, uh, and that phrase kind of gotten well known. And at last count, all 50 people from all 50 States and five countries have purchased our, um, hmm. merchandise. And, 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 and that phrase seems to resonate with people, you know, the simplicity of it. Um, I, if I was going to give credit to anyone, it would be 
Leopold, because uh, he's had such a profound impact on me and sort of trying to distill down uh, so many of the wonderful things and quotes that he has. Well, Doug, I think that that's a, first of all, it's a great story because you're right. It does resonate with people. And more specifically, my own personal story is when I bought my uh, piece of ground up in New York, the owner that actually sold it to us, he actually had the price set so high and everybody that actually showed up at that place, he wanted to be there because he wanted to pick that next family to turn Mm. that property over to. And we are very thankful and honored that it was us. And on the day that we closed, he gave me a folder that was probably four inches thick with papers, even predating his purchase uh, from the family that he bought it from, whose son was an Eagle Scout and kept this very meticulous log of the place down to the point of when they actually saw the first deer on the property, where, where they saw the first grouse and the actual dates. And I still have that all cataloged and held together. And it pushed me to start my own little journal that I'm going to be including into that. So I think that that, that philosophy, I think, you know, as you probably well know, I shouldn't, I'm not telling you anything you don't know that all the countries in 50 States, you know, showing people that have purchased it. It is, it's something that's, I think positive in the sense that there's a lot of people out there that feel that way, which is a very encouraging thought. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, it's, it, and I'll just plug that we, if you go to dougduran.com, we still have uh, that merchandise available and it actually continues to support um, our ongoing efforts, some of which we might um, continue to, to talk about. Um, it's been kind of cool because it's not how I make my living. Um, and so all the, any of the profits that we get from that get earmarked uh, specifically to conservation projects and conservation efforts that were that I'm involved with. Well, I'll be getting one because it, I, I, I align with that hundred percent. I love it. So I'm going to take a, take it from a different angle. So Mike had the great experience that someone really loved the land that he bought when he bought it and handed over to him some really valuable information I had the opposite situation where I bought a piece of land where the landowners were absentee and the people that were using it were abusing it. So they were Mm -hmm. complete takers. They weren't givers at all. And so it was a reclamation project. And I'm very proud of what we've done in just a year with that. But uh, it made me think a lot about a lot of things. Number one, I just couldn't believe that anybody could treat any piece of land the way it was treated. I, I just I wasn't brought up that way either. Uh, I love Leopold as well, and it has had an influence on my life. But so did you know my parents and common sense, right? Like you know, treat yeah. things, treat things the right way, take care of your things. And so uh, I think it's sort of a fifty-fifty thing. I see a lot of abuse of land as well, and I think, as we know, about ninety-five percent of all land in the United States is private land. And you're a person that is very generous with your farm. Just just the number of people I see hunting there in a year is pretty impressive. But then all the things that you do there to support conservation. What would your pitch be to a private landowner out there about what they can do to do a little bit more to give back to conservation? Because really, it's private landowners that hold the key. Man, especially uh, in the in the eastern two-thirds of the United States, right? <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
our uh, Southwest Wisconsin here in my county, 95% of the, of the land in our county, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, privately owned. Um, and 85% of our county is well is wildlife habitat, specifically deer habitat when we work on those sort of things. So if you're going to do anything in conservation on a landscape scale, or if you're going to do anything in ecosystem management on a landscape sale scale, or, um, I guess, you know, deer management or whatever, you're going to have to involve private landowners. And, uh, I think that's a responsibility that, that, that folks don't necessarily understand right at the beginning. When I was a kid, um, land around here was, uh, pretty much all, you know, small farms and all locally owned. Um, I remember being 12 years old and, and, and the first seeing the first no trespassing sign. And it was, uh, on some land, a guy from away, he was from Milwaukee, um, drove a brand new Mercedes Benz, which to us kids looked like a spaceship, of course. <laughs> and, uh, he bought this piece of land and, you know, honestly, it was a rundown farm, you know, you know, it'd been a, um, you know, pretty small and, and rundown farm and, and, uh, 50 years ago. And, and, uh, but he, the first thing he did was put up no trespassing signs, never seen one before. Um, I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorite ones, a place where we all used to access the trout stream on another farm, including this guy with the Mercedes Benz. And as you could, you know, stuck out like a sore thumb. So you'd go there sometimes and his car would be parked there and he'd walk through private land to get down to the trout stream, which was on private land as well. Cause there weren't easements or anything like that time. One day I showed up there with a couple of buddies of mine on our bicycles and here on that fence, on that gate to that going uh, that fence was a sign that said, if your land is posted, stay the hell off of mine. Hmm. And the, uh, the guy, the farmer was, he's one of those guys, you know, he just got to the point. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I just remember thinking, what is all that? And we looked at each other, like, what does that mean? And then we realized what it was all about. So, over time, that was the first person over time, 65% of our land in this county is now owned by folks who don't live here. Hmm. And that's, wow. there's pros and cons to all of that. You know, I'm not begrudging that or bemoaning it because I'll give you, I'll use this example of the same guy. He has passed on, but his family still owns that property. And it is a prime example of good conservation. Um, got cattle out of the creek bottoms. He planted trees. He did rehabilitation work. Hell, he even wrote a book called Common Sense Forestry. It's over on my shelf over there. Um, really interesting. And so, you know, he's one of those people that you kind of looked at and go, you know, there's a line in an old Guy Clark song. They can't tell if I'm a blessing or a curse. And it seems like that, you know, is the case. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to work with landowners about is, I mean, I was raised by a, a guy, my dad, who was very much a, you know, a man of the people. And he was a deer hunter back and he was a real deer hunter, as he would say, they used to go up North as a group, you know, all world war II buddies and they hunted together and everything they did was sort of together. It was very community based stuff. So if somebody asked to go hunting on our farm or mushrooming on our farm or ginseng picking or whatever, if they were somebody that he knew, he'd go, yeah, go ahead. And some other, you know, some people just went, um, which wasn't always that great a thing, but, and eventually, you know, you end up with issues. You can end up with issues of just open access also. Right. And 
you know, again, years ago, God, I keep wanting to say when I was a kid, um, but years ago, the, the trespass laws in Wisconsin were, if it wasn't posted, it was open. Right. And now that's changed. Now, if you don't have permission to be on a piece of land, you're trespassing. Mm -hmm. So there's no requirement for posting it anymore, which honestly, I think is a good way. You shouldn't be on somebody's land without permission. Right. Um, but in, in what I found and what I, some friends of mine have found is that, and, and they're not all folks that I, that grew up like I did where, Hey, you know, you know, the guy down the road needed some help bailing hay and bail hay with them and they'd help us. And then when it came hunting time, we just go, you know? Um, so there was that kind of exchange, right but that was helping each other. And we realized we were not only, re you realize over time and not only we were helping making firewood together, um, doing those kind of things. You were doing things that were good for the community. It was good for the land. And I, I work, as I said, I work with a lot of um, new, new landowners um, through my Lone Oak interests. Uh, LLC, my, uh, my land uh, management and consulting and contracting business. And, Land, and then I've done and been involved with a whole bunch of volunteer efforts and organizations and stuff. And boy, I'll tell you what new landowners, and I bet you had this experience already, Nick. I mean, you knew what you were your eyes wide open when you went into it, but owning a piece of land is a lot of work. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, especially if you're trying to do, you know, good management, that sort of stuff. And if you're trying to do good management on a piece of property, it's a lot of work and you're either going to put in a lot of time or a lot of money and probably some of both. And the number one thing that you, that, that I find is that, boy, I wish I had another set of hands here today while I'm doing this. And so um, the whole idea of cooperative access and cooperative conservation makes nothing but sense. And, and, you know, Leopold was a leader in this. Um, a lot of folks aren't familiar with the Riley game cooperative, which he started about the same time. It just evolved, but it started about the same time. He bought the land over in Baraboo, just 30 miles here to my, to my East what that became the farm and the shack and the, and the, uh, you know, now where the Leopold foundation is, but um, in Riley, Wisconsin, he was driving through that area looking for a place to hunt. I mean, he, he writes about it and, uh, and uh, he was looking for pheasant hunting specifically. He stops by a farm and starts yakking with this guy, uh, Ruben Paulson. And Ruben says, well, you know, you could hunt here, but I'll tell you, you know, we have a lot of trouble with trespassers. People don't like, aren't like you. They just go, they don't ask. And Leopold looked around and said, well, I, you might be having some trouble with trespassers, but the other thing is, is your habitat isn't very good. <laughs> and, um, he said to old Ruben, how about this? Eventually what evolved was that he and some buddies of his from Madison who were looking for opportunities to hunt helped him develop a land management plan and then they implemented it they did the work and then you know if you go and read about riley you can go onto my uh, uh website or you can go onto the sharing the land website and we we write about it on there and um there's a couple articles up about it on there and just that whole idea that and, and then this thing formed it was called the the riley game cooperative and uh so it provided access it provided opportunity it improved conservation and improved habitat and uh, it also provided community there was a yearly meeting and they gather and get together. And, um, so really, you know, Leopold, you know, he's just a leader in all of it. And, um, the Leop, uh, the Riley game cooperative eventually faded away. It went on for, well, from the thirties up until the, uh, sixties. 
you know, and a few things happened, of course. Uh, one was there's a little thing called World War II kind of got in the way and uh, Leopold died. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then access didn't used to be an issue. Um, you know, like I said, I grew up in the in 63. So in the early seventies, when I was really coming into hunting and stuff, it just wasn't access, wasn't an issue. Access become, has become an issue now. So there's an opportunity for landowners and access seekers to work cooperatively, both to improve conservation on, uh, in an area and on a property. And then also, um, as a, as a group, as a cooperative, um, uh, benefit from that conservation. Certainly rings a bell with me, this idea that you spend a lot of time and money (laughs) if you are managing land. And, you know, it's funny, I was thinking the other day, I used to, by this time of year, I would have already been fly fishing, you know, a half dozen to a dozen times already. And I haven't even touched my stuff yet. And it's because I've been tree cutting or, uh, you know, planting, managing, cleaning up plant, you know, planting trees, like I mentioned, but to me, there's every bit of a reward as of a reward as you land a trout and you get it in your hand as opposed as, as compared to I'm out there picking rocks in a food plot and I hear grouse drumming. And that's very satisfying too. And so I think it's a labor of love. It's definitely a lot of money and it's definitely a lot of time, but I've, you know, I, I bought it. I like to hunt deer and I like to have, um, you know, a place for, for my family to, to go to and whatnot, but it's all the stuff you love. It's, it's planting the trees and watching them grow. It's the songbirds, it's the grouse, it's the, you know, spring peepers in the, in the spring coming out. And so I think you've touched on all those things. Uh, it really becomes a labor of love and yes, there's time and yes, there's money, but man, what you get back out of it, there's hardly any better investment. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I feel very lucky to be the, the steward of my generation. Um, our farm is owned by my four siblings and I, and they're always thanking me about, you know, for all the work that I do there. And I'm like, man, I feel like I'm the lucky one, you know? Um, and, and so there is a big part of that. And, and then as I, as I said, I, the opportunity to, to involve other people and help them learn about conservation and, and uh, that it's not just taking, you know, that it's you're putting into and improving it. And I, and I know you've had this satisfaction. I'm sure you both have had this satisfaction of improving habitat. Um, you know, for, all kinds of wildlife. I don't concentrate at all on, on deer. I I'm I'm sort of, you know, good, good forest management is good uh, deer habitat management. It's good for other things as well. Um, I'm actually kind of heavily involved with pollinators and I'm just really interested in pollinators right now. But I also noticed that boy, the deer love to go in there and and, um, chew on those forbs. Um, All of those things uh, just make such a big impact on, you know, on, on, on everything that you're doing. And that's, it's just, that's the gratifying part to me. Well, let's jump over to something a little less gratifying for all of us. And uh, (laughs) that is this little issue of chronic wasting disease. And so in in addition to all the great things you've done there on your farm and in Wisconsin and the, uh, you know, the, the merchandise and getting the word out about conservation, you've also been, a real national leader on this issue. You're someone that I look at and I say to myself, because I watch your interactions on Facebook and other places, and I say, 
you know, Doug just really doesn't care what you think. He's going to tell, he's going to tell you what he thinks and you're not afraid to engage in challenging conversations sometimes on CWD. And so, as you know, as well as anybody, it's an uphill communications battle. I can tell you that from the National Deer Association, anytime we post anything about CWD, number one, we automatically start a fight. And number two, we lose people off of our mailing list because they don't want to hear about it because it's not good news. And so the, the, one of the things I'm going to ask you out of the gate here is why do you do it? Why do you put yourself through having those arguments and also tell us a little bit about all the things you've personally done to be a leader in Wisconsin on this issue. Hmm. Well, I talk a lot about my experience and perspective on chronic wasting disease. And I put myself solidly in the middle of um, issues and concerns. And, and boy, one thing I learned um, over time is that you, you need to spend a little time listening to experts. Um, and you have to understand what experts are and learn who they are. Um, and you have to put a certain amount of trust in that and um, trust in science. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with questioning. And the other part of it is reserving the right to change your mind. Um, that kind of boils down with, you know, with everything I do. And the other part of it is, is hey, go back to it's not ours, it's just our turn. I, I benefited from the, the concerns and the, and the work of previous generations. Again, when I was 12 years old, 50 years ago, it was a big deal to see deer around here. I mean, you told people about it when you saw deer out in the field or one across the road or that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so I've always wondered when people start attacking like our department of natural resources and the, the, the scientists and the deer managers. So you mean to tell me that these folks who were the same ones who through their management policies and management programs and ideas that brought this number of deer, you know, developed this herd to this point. Now, all of a sudden don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's really one of the things. Um, I mean, I've spoken with you and, you know, and, and some of the folks in your organization too, about, you know, trying to balance all this and I get it. I mean, the folks at meat eater, um, Spencer Newarth over there, you know, he's like, man, CWD is people just, they don't want to hear about it. And, um, you know, and that's a media company and they're, you know, they want to, um, they want to increase viewership and, and, um, and yeah, and people want to argue about it. And, and I understand, man, I, I completely agree. I wish it wasn't a problem, but I can't have a problem staring me in the face coming onto my property, coming into this area and growing and obviously growing and ignore it. Um, you know, I say, if you don't have it, you don't want it. And if you do have it, you want as little as possible. I mean, I, you know, again, trying to break this stuff down to bumper stickers that guys like me can understand. That is, was a really simple thing to me. I've, I went 20, gosh, Nick, what's it been 20 years ago now that, that CW was first identified here mm -hmm. in Wisconsin. And we were on the Northern edge of the CWD zone. And I'm like, ah, I mean, are we supposed to touch the deer now when we shoot them? And, you know, it's almost like COVID, like when COVID first started, oh my God, should we freak out? And um, 
you know, and, and so we're really super cautious to begin with. And then, you know, you spend a little time learning about it rather than just like reacting from ignorance. And I get so much of, Oh, you know, DNR, the department of no, no results and, you know, damn near Russia and all this other stuff. And it's just like, what in goodness name, why would they be sounding this alarm being concerned about this when they've dedicated their life to wildlife biology, they've dedicated their lives to white tailed deer. To me, that's a more legitimate thing than that. Ah, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, and so, you know, my, my um, understanding of it, of, of chronic wasting diseases, not only from listening to the experts and seeing what has happened over time, um, but it's also my own, you know, experience and, and, uh, and paying attention to it. Um, it, it to me, it's just, it, it doesn't. It, it makes nothing but sense to be concerned about it. We've, I've seen the, the kinds of things that happen, you know, sick deer, um, going down and visiting people in Southeast, you know, Southeastern Richland County, just 20 miles South of us. And these guys are like, Doug, big deer are gone. Mm -hmm. Um, we're finding them dead in the woods. Um, one of the members of our County deer advisory council, uh, shot three deer in his yard last year that were out of, you know, that were, that were in the final stages of, 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 of CWD. I understand if it's not, if it's not something that's in your area that you are having this sort of personal experience with, I can understand why it would be hard to imagine, especially when people are going, well, you know what we're going to have to do to manage this disease and start talking about the, the, what has to happen or what should happen to control it. I get that part. I mean, I, you know, I, I wish it wasn't true also. I mean, that's the other part of it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I get into some discussions about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into those here in a second, because I'm particularly in interested in a recent one, but no, you're right. I mean, the deer dead in the woods one is one that we have written about and talked about. Uh, I got to tell you folks, that's great. You haven't found dead deer in the woods yet because it, you get to the point that Doug just described and you are finding them you're already in big trouble. Yeah. Uh, that's number one. Um, number two, I, I also get a kick out of that one because I think about, well, how often are you actually in the woods? Like, oh, well, you know, I go out a couple of days during deer season. Well, that's not being in the woods and knowing what's going on out there. Uh, like other, others of us are out there. So uh, we, Lindsay Thomas on our team recently wrote an article. You may have seen it. I did. Nine yeah. CWD commenters we can ignore. And one mm -hmm. of the funny things, and it was so predictable because we talked about it before he even put it out there. I said, immediately what's going to happen, Lindsay, is the people that you're writing about are going to jump on the article and they're going to just show themselves. And it's exactly what they did. You may have seen some of that. I did. I did. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it was predictable and, um, you know, it was a little bit sad and I, and I don't, I mean, I, I keep hoping and, and, you know, pushing for research and I'm interested in all this and I'm interested in what people have to say and why they say what they say or why they think what they think. Um, it's been a little easier with some of the folks around here. And I'll have to say that there's been a, I think a pretty big sea change in our area. Um, and, and, you know, of Southwest Wisconsin, I mean that people are like, yeah, yeah I'm seeing it. You know, you see a, you can go to my Instagram page and see one of the, uh, 
just down the road from us, a, a three-year-old buck that had dropped his antlers in December and he's laying there by the side of this field road and he's, he's in the final stages of CWD and the guy mm-hmm. shoots him and brings him up and, and, uh, you know, and he, he said, well, what do you think? I said, well, I, getting him tested is the only way we're going to know for sure. But it was a three-year-old bucket already dropped his antlers in mid-December. He was lying there shaking again. You can go and see it on my Instagram. And I said, but if uh, anybody wants to, I'll bet a paycheck that this deer's got chronic wasting disease. Um, I get a lot of people contacting me. Hey, what do you think of this deer? You know, is it right? And, you know, this time of the year, I'm getting it a lot. Well, it's spring and, you know, winter weakens and spring kills. And, but I'm looking very carefully at um, deer that I see looking at very carefully at, at, um, pictures on my trail cameras, you know, of the deer that, you know, look differently. And when I saw, um, the last couple of summers, when we started seeing deer showing up on our, on our cameras that were, that looked like it was early spring and they were, you could just see it happening to them. We're not looking for them. Right. Um, it's just a very different, um, it's a very different experience. Yeah, we could we could have a whole show on the psychology of people and CWD and also the inability to believe inconvenient truths. We don't just see it in CWD. We see well, we saw it with COVID and we saw it with a whole see it with other things in society. And that's a that's a whole other show. Uh, matter of fact, I think that's what I talked about whenever we were talking together in Minnesota a few years ago. Um, so we'll save that for another time. But related to this, I got to ask you. So our <laughs> The Nuge, Ted Nugent, right? Uh, Ted, I saw Ted in a concert when I was a kid. He was with Damn Yankees, and it was awesome. <laughs> and Ted is still a great entertainer, but he's been outspoken outspoken in particular on chronic wasting disease. And I don't mean to just pick on him. There's others as well, many other folks that are sort of celebrity types that have a following. And people believe them because it's more convenient to believe things that suit their desires and believing that CWD is a hoax or nothing to worry about fits right into that. And so they get a following, but you know, you in your position uh, sometimes get an opportunity to uh, argue, argue some counterpoints to some of the things that have been said. So I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring that up. That reason I was looking around, I was looking for these notes um, as uh I'm sure a lot of the folks that listen to your podcast also listen to Steve Ranella's podcast, the mediator podcast, and they had good old Ted on there recently. And it was interesting because I I was uh, hanging out with Ryan Callahan a couple of weeks before they went down there. And um, again, anybody who kind of follows that knows that um, I'm not, uh, I'm not shy when it comes to pointing stuff out to Steve. He had said something about when a couple of your guys were on um, Matt and, um, and Hank were on uh, Steve's show and, and they were there with Mark Kenyon. I happened to be trout fishing out there at the time. And um, he said something about CWD, uh, not being worried about it until it jumps. And other than that is just something that, you know, kill another thing that kills deer. And there's all kinds of those. And I was like, what? And um, so Steve got a nasty gram from me and he and I had a little <laughs> bit of a discussion about it afterwards. And then he goes, well, I'm going to have to have you on the podcast now. And up to then he never had uh, people on remotely, but he called me one they called me one day and I was on the farm and I said, all right, I'll shut the tractor off. And and then just kind of reading the riot act about all of the other reasons that you should be concerned about chronic wasting disease. And, um, and, 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 and you guys cover that, you cover those issues so well, the thing about 
how it changes age structure, how it is having population impacts, how, you know, it, it can have a, uh, th that's the a concern about the future of deer hunting. So it was interesting when Cal and I were together and he said, he just kind of casually said in conversation, uh, when someone else in the group asked him, what do you got going on coming up, Cal? And he goes, eh, in a couple of weeks, we're going down to Texas and <laughs> going down there to this ranch. And then uh, we're doing a podcast with Ted Nugent. And um, everybody in the group just looked at me <laughs> and I just like, huh, didn't say a word. I think they were all worried that I was going to like, you know, get a little upset. And I didn't. I mean, it's like, I understand why Steve would have Nugent on. I mean, he had certainly had a profound impact on him when he was a young man. Um, there's things that I agree with Ted about, like crossbows being one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, some other things, but um, but then when they got on the podcast, he, um, he kind of went off and there was just a lot of, um, information, uh, misinformation. One of the, one of the things that Steve always asked folks, the first thing is that if I had burger here from CWD deer and made you burgers of it, would you eat it? And everybody says, yes. Who's, you know, and he goes, okay, well then I'll continue the conversation. I then posted that video of that buck that's in the final stages of cwd and i was like yeah i understand and i'm not i'm not uh saying that you shouldn't eat meat from a deer that tests positive chronic wasting disease i'm saying that's your decision mm -hmm. but i think it's a very different decision when you're making it for other people and if you're making it for kids those are two things that i would say and then the other thing is I mean, I've, I've had, I've killed the, the positive deer that I've tested did not look sick. Um, as I said, there have been others that have been brought to me or I gotten calls and that kind of stuff. Would you eat the deer, you know, the meat from that deer? Well, that's one of them. So there's a difference between saying you would and knowingly doing it. I know folks who say, ah, I'm not getting it tested because I'm going to eat it anyway. So it's almost like ignorance you know, it's benign neglect or ignorance is bliss kind of thing, but to grind up the meat from one that's in the final stages, um, would be very, I think would be a very different experience. Um, Ted said stuff like, uh, well, you'd have trouble finding 10 deer that had CWD. I was like, really? I had 12 on my farm so far. Um, you know, the vitality of the herd and herd dynamics, he was like, oh, it's not any issues with that kind of thing at all. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. There's a number of um, that you folks have published about, but there's a number that is showing about um, the, the effect on the age structure of the herd and that there have been population impacts in some areas. Um, in Southwest Wisconsin, it has not been, uh, we've not had, other than maybe in some isolated pockets, population uh dynamic issues but we have had some age structure issues that the, the the higher the prevalence gets the 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 more widespread it gets in the area what we're seeing is that the herd is trending younger older deer are just are are becoming more rare um so there are those four studies and actually there's a boone and crockett article that summarized it eh, that's a pretty good resource um and yeah, man, we're, we're killing a lot of big, um, big old bucks yet. Um, we killed a really nice, uh, 116 inch 10 pointer on the farm this year. And, um, I tell you, I saw him two weeks before he, a uh, friend of mine arrowed him and, uh, 
couldn't quite figure it out because he was standing in the yard of this oh. it's a adjacent property. He's just standing there. And it's a property that we, that is a part of my, um, my uh, hunting area and that we have exclusive access to. And he's standing there in the yard. And I was like, Oh, it must be a doe around. But it was like, this is mid, mid October. He's just getting, and he just stood there with sort of a look of not understanding. And I've seen a lot of deer in my day and watched him walk down behind the house. I, I mean, I was 25 yards from him in my truck. Wow. Big old white tails don't stand there like no. that. five and a half year old buck doesn't stand like that. He walks down behind the house. I get another look at him. Eventually he just walks down to the Creek nonchalantly. Um, uh, my buddy chip, um, arrowed him two weeks later. And, um, he said, he seemed like he was acting fine when he came in or when he came through, he was following another, another buck. And, um, but he tested positive and, you know, we've talked about that a lot since, um, Oh man, what else? Uh, the human transmission transmission concern. Yeah. Okay. But what about the effect on the resource? That was one of the other things that, um, uh, that, I mean, there was just, man, we could go on and on. Well, the thing that I really resented though, is when he started talking about, um, about it being a, a hoax and kind of a conspiracy. And I, and I go kind of go back to the supporting of our biologists and the people who've dedicated their lives to this. What in the world motivation would they have? Um, talk about the, following the money. Well, I can certainly understand where there would be people in the industry who might be concerned about um, uh, in the short term, how it could be a financial problem if we really do um, get very active about our CWD uh, uh, management. So um, there's an upcoming podcast, uh, Meat Eater podcast with Steve, where I do address some of this stuff as well. And I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about it today. No, thank you. And I think one of the, uh, one of the, th what you love about Steve's show is what you hate about it sometimes. And what yeah. you love about it is, is that he will go into the uncomfortable spots and what you hate about it is that he'll go into the uncomfortable, uncomfortable spots. spots. Oh, man. And I think that's what makes it a great show. So sorry there, doctor, I interrupted you. No, I just wanted to say for everybody in, in regards to, you know, here we are, we have a guest on the show and he has a very strong opinion <clears throat> and excuse me. And but before I, I would say that before you actually, you know, judge what he's saying is you need to go to his website and look at the graphic. There's a graphic on the, on the one page where it shows the expand of CWD in Doug's area by year. And he actually has a mark on where his county is. And I think with a lot of people, they don't worry about anything until the wolf is actually knocking at the door. And by then it's usually, usually too late. And in a situation where, you know, you're getting slapped in the face with having to deal with this, um, for someone like myself, what I do is I actually pay attention because the wolf isn't at my door yet, but I want to know what Doug's doing when the wolf's at his door and how he's doing with that, because it's going to help me do better when it, be when it becomes my time and to try and, you know, bury my head in the sand, like an ostrich. And even though I don't really do that, um, but to bury my head in the sand figuratively, um, is just going to be foolish. So, um, getting information from quality sources and, the one good thing that I always encourage people to do is, you know, if you don't believe Doug, do your own research from very well vetted sources. Just like if you believe or don't believe Ted Nugent, go and actually do your own research with, you know, some good sources and make an educated decision on your own. But um, 
this is something that, you know, the conversations can be uncomfortable. It's a very, very visceral, very emotional type of topic right now because deer hunting and hunting in general is something that holds very deep rooted feelings to people. And, um, they don't, some people don't want to have to hear it. And they, they think that that's the better way to go. And I'd encourage you that that is really not the better way to go is getting your information, getting your hands a little bit dirty and figuring things out is a, is a much better way for us as a community hunters, conservationists, wildlife photographers, nature watchers alike need to do a better job at getting on board with this while we still can. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's, I, I agree with all of that. Um, th- there is an article on the mediator website that I wrote um, that I originally titled um, why everyone should care about CWD. Um, their editor changed it to why hunters should care, you know, cause it's of course the mediator and it's about, it's a hunting show after all. And, um, but I uh, have had discussions with folks in the, in the wildlife um, or in the animal rights community. And I've asked them, how come you guys aren't concerned about CW? This is a horrific disease. If you are concerned about an individual animal, a deer to watch what happens to a deer that has chronic wasting disease, someone who's compared com- concerned about animal welfare should be getting behind this as well. So where are our friends in the animal welfare community? Um, If you're concerned about big giant bucks um, and growing big giant bucks and which, gee, I kind of like them myself. um, (laughs) You should be concerned about this disease because it will drive the age structure uh, of your herd down over time. If you're concerned about, overall population and, and animal health, you should be concerned about it. Um, and the longevity of hunting, you should be concerned about it. And I'm not saying you should throw up your hands and say, oh my God, this is awful. But no matter what you're doing in life, I think those ongoing examinations and conversations and you know adjustments in what you're doing in your life is a part of it. You know, people, well, how do you get concerned about it? I grew up with a farm. I, I mean, I'm a farm kid. This is basic animal husbandry to me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, like the doctor and I were, where we live, if we were to shoot a deer on my property, which isn't a CWD management zone, we actually can't just throw it in a truck and bring it home to where we live, even though it's only 30 minutes away because we're outside of a zone. So is that the end of the world? No. We instead we have to deal with those animals on site, no big deal, and then we put our heads in the in the bin for sampling, and we we get the results. It's really not that much of a big deal. Uh, we'll save that for another time. I want to ask you this though, in closing, about CWD, and then we'll get you out of here. I want to be cognizant of your time. You've done an awful lot in your local area and for for Wisconsin, and even nationally, just because of the platform that you have talking about CWD. And so I want to ask you two things. I want to ask you first of all. Could, would you describe your work as being successful? Have you had success? And two, is there hope? And the short answer to both of those is yes. Um, uh, a friend of mine who I grew up with, you know, uh, he stayed here. I moved away for a long time. I came back. He came to the uh, the dumpster the first year and uh, was tossing his deer carcass in there. And, uh, I was like, well, that's, that's great. You, you're doing that. You want to get the head tested? And he said, what for? 
I said, for chronic wasting disease. And I swear to God, this guy sounded like Homer Simpson. He said, <laughs> CWD, is that still around? And he had heard about it, you know, 12, 14 years before, but he kind of just quit thinking about it because, oh, gee, we were supposed to take a more passive approach to chronic wasting disease, right? That was one of the things that happened about eight years ago, nine years ago. And I said, um, well, <laughs> kind of explained to him, and he goes, well, I'm just really happy that you had this here so that the carcasses don't end up in the ditch in a pile somewhere, which kind of just told me right where he had been putting them. In the <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and so that was uh, five years ago, and we did this for the first time. Um, I have sat next to him in the local gin mill restaurant in the last year, and he's telling me about CWD. Wow. You know, yep. like yep. I didn't know. <laughs> it was just kind of interesting. And then, and he goes, you know, and we really got to be concerned about it. Here are the things that we have to do. I have seen a change over time, over the last five or six years where we've been real active and I've had the kiosk and the dumpster and stuff on the farm of, and attitudes about it in our area and people being real concerned about it because they are spending that time. Like the good doctor said of, of, cause I tell people, don't take my word for it. There's plenty of information out here you know, and here's some good sources. I always point them to NDA to cwdinfo.org, um, wildlife health departments, you know, um, you know, those sort of things. And, and, um, and it, it, it seems as though thinking people, thoughtful people are like, well, gee, as my friend, Mitch Baker says, I'd rather do everything that we could and find out that we did more than we had to, than to not do enough and find out we should have done more. Um, and we're certainly finding out that we can do more. Um, people are getting, we've gotten a lot more people involved with the adopt a kiosk and adopt dumpster program. The DNR has gotten on board, um, with that, and they've gotten some fun, extra funding for us. So that those of us who have, um, who have kiosk, or I'm sorry, dumpsters on our farm or that we've got locations, um, a couple of locations for them. Like I have two different locations, um, that our financial exposure is now limited as opposed to you're going to have to pay for the whole thing, Doug. Um, and other people were doing that too. And, you know, I, I get credited for that all the time. And there were a lot of other people who started, um, who, who were also interested in doing that and, you know, who, who encouraged me. And then, and that has expanded throughout the state. Um, I, 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 a DNR is being more, our DNR is being more, I mean, I those guys 20 years ago, you know, 15 years ago, really, they got, beat down pretty hard. I mean, you can understand right. they got discouraged. And I think that there's a resurgence there. I'm working with my Southern deer biologist, who, by the way, is on the uh, latest Cal in the field uh, YouTube um, show that, that just came out, which we recorded last year. My, my, uh, my Southern deer biologist, Eric Cannonia, who's a, who I've worked with for several years now, and who's just a great guy. Um, you never meet anybody who loves white-tailed deer more than that cat. And, um, you know, he's, he's invigorated people. And, and so we see a real concern for it in this area. Um, and so I feel, uh, I feel hopeful about that. I've had people from around the country, different States reach out to me, a ranch manager out in Montana talking to me recently about some of the issues that they're having over there in the Ruby Valley and, and wanting to learn from what we've done. Um, 
And, you know, I'm, we're, we're still, you know, figuring it all the, all the time and then having the opportunity to speak with guys like you and in the, the organization that, that, you know, is a leader in this. Um, I, I just, I, I'm very, I'm very hopeful. Um, I mean, we can manage this disease and we, just like we've always managed, we, you know, we've managed deer, we've managed, this is what, who, this is, we're, we're the people who need to be doing this. So I'm, I'm, I'm always cautiously optimistic, but I'm particularly optimistic. I think there's plenty of hope, but ignoring it. Yeah. As I told Spencer, when we were on, I was on the podcast in December with Jim Heffelfinger. I was like, yeah, Spencer, go ahead. Keep ignoring it. It's not remember how they used to say when we were kids, ignore your teeth and they'll go away. Ignore CWD and it won't go away. <laughs> Very well put. Very well put. Hey, Doug, I want to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you. You've already mentioned DougDuran.com. Where else can they find you? Um, it's I'm at Doug Duran on Instagram. And then I would like to tell you briefly about our um, new project called Sharing the Land. And this was sort of born out of these um, a, a conservation ethic the Riley Game Cooperative. Um, you can go to www.sharingtheland.com and learn about um, what we're doing with that project. I'm happy to announce that we have our first two um, sponsors who I've been talking with for a while and who are really behind it. Onyx Mapping and Vortex Optics um, are sponsoring us right now. Um, we are um, developing uh, we've, we've proven the concept, um, and we're developing the model and we hope that we'll see more conservation cooperatives, access, um, cooperatives, um, um, start to grow around the country and we will be uh, doing more. We've got some more property owners involved and there's just a lot on there. And if, if you go on there and, and check out sharingtheland.com and follow us also on Instagram and, um, really appreciate, um, the opportunity to get to talk about that a little bit. Yes, definitely check that out, folks, and we will provide links to all of these in the show description. So in the show notes, look for those if you didn't scratch those down. Uh, Doug, I really appreciate you squeezing us in here. I know you got a very busy schedule. Uh, I know that uh, Leopold has had a huge influence on your life, and I feel very confident that if he was still here, uh, you guys would be hanging out because you are uh, not just talking the talk, you're walking the walk. I'm a fan, as many others are, and so... Uh, thank you for the inspiration and the willingness to be what, like I said, a true conservationist. And thanks again for, for being on the show. Well, thanks very much for having me and, you know, hopefully we'll do it again. I could talk to Doug all day. I mean, he just, we have so much in common in terms of just sort of how we see the world. And I remember when I first heard about Doug, I think I'd first heard of him on the meat eater podcast. And as you heard in the interview, I had a chance to present with him. And he's just, to me, Mike, is a true conservationist uh, and a leader that doesn't have to be. Like, Doug doesn't have to speak outwardly and openly about his feelings on chronic wasting disease. He doesn't have to do that, but he does it. And I appreciate that because it's not an easy conversation. And he's, uh, I just see him as, as such a good leader. Well, I think in general, there are people that are okay putting themselves out there for the right reasons. And they're willing to accept, I'm going to use the term backlash, um, but more in a like internet troll kind of, I guess I'll, I'll use the word cowardly type of way. And we've seen that a lot in a lot of the guests that we've had where uh, people do 
and say whatever they want when you're not face to face to them. And that can be a drain on you, but I think Doug gets it and the upside to him is well worth any downside. So yeah, I, I really liked the interview. Yeah, it was good. It was a good conversation. Please check it out. Uh, his, You can buy one of those shirts I was telling you about. Incidentally, I wore that coming home. I'm going to tell the story about Austin, Texas here in a second, but I wore that shirt home on the way home from my trip, which involved a couple flights and whatnot. And I got multiple comments on that. Like, oh, I really like that. Oh, I really like that. And I'm like, oh, well, you can get one. And I told them about Doug's website and I'm getting on the airplane uh, from Austin. I was connecting through Detroit. And, uh, you know, of course, you don't just ever walk on and sit in your seat. You got to wait in line and all this. And uh, I was watching people reading my shirt as I was walking by. So uh, also check out Meat Eater episode 331. This was a couple weeks ago. Doug is on there and they're talking a little turkey hunting. Very entertaining. Uh, episode so get you can get more Doug right there. All right, this return trip from Austin. I was down there for the National Shooting Sports Foundation Marketing and Leadership Summit. Great event. Our friends from National Shooting Sports Foundation, as always, this is one event that I try to get to every single year. However, oh, Mike, I had the best plans. I had good flights flying down. I left early. Well, mid morning, it wasn't uncomfortably early. I have an hour and a half drive to Pittsburgh International, so I have to, if I do a 6 a.m. flight, like I gotta, I'm up at a ridiculous hour, but I didn't. I got a nice flight down, left in the middle of the day, had a good trip down there. Everything was fine. And coming back, I had a nice flight back. I was going to connect in Detroit at about 4 p.m. and be home in time for dinner. Well, uh, the first flight was fine. Then I get into Detroit and I see, okay, it's delayed until 5 well, that's not a big deal. I'm figuring, okay, there were some thunderstorms in the Northeast, could have been that, you know, something along those lines. So you're spending another couple hours in the airport than you thought, walked around, I bought a shirt that I don't need, <laughs> had something to eat. And then I, I'm sitting there waiting and all of a sudden I see the board changes to 7.30. And this is what we call a creeping delay. Those of us who fly a lot, when you start seeing creeping delays, you start to get nervous. So I'm like, all right. So I figured out a way to spend. I actually, this is a ridiculous thing, but I have to tell you, this is how bored I was. I decided to walk Concourse A in Detroit from one end to the other because it's so long and I just wanted to know how long it was. So I literally started at one end and put on my little Nike run app. And it's uh, for those of you who are dying to know this, it's 0.92 miles. <laughs> so it's almost a mile, just that one concourse. So then I finish my mile and I go back and I get to the gate uh, for my 7.30 and there's uh, a plane shows up, but now I see people scrambling because there's no crew to take us anywhere. And then they get on and make an announcement that, well, we're trying to find a crew and we might have to switch providers. And now I'm getting nervous because I've got enough experience flying. And then they started using words like no guarantee that there will be a flight and everything else. There was one other flight to Pittsburgh, which was booked. And so what I did was I immediately hustled over and got on the train or the tram to get to the car rental place because my thought is I'm, I'm renting a car and I'm driving home from Detroit because it, it might sound scary, but it's really not that bad from Detroit airport to Pittsburgh International driving is a little under four hours. I thought I would get there, get my truck and then drive home, of course. And so I, so I did, that's what I did. I went and it, uh, took me two rental car places, but I got one. Uh, it cost me another almost $200. 
but I was able to drive home, got to Pittsburgh International, drove home, got home about two in the morning. So that put to the end any thoughts I had about turkey hunting. And then I called the very next morning and the airline delivered my bag to my house, got, uh, got here around noon yesterday. Uh, so yeah, planes, trains, and automobiles for real, Mike. That was, yeah. I mean, you know, I called I you, we what. talked. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. We are we are close as in regards to friends. And I did tell you that if, you know, you got tired or something, just give me a call and I can, you know, talk to you because I knew it was uh, an unplanned event. So you are a better man than I am. But I will have to say for once, um, as you were actually holding up your end of the B team, I actually have a ton of positive things that have happened to me in the past week. So may I share? Well, that would be awesome because everyone else right now is like, they're all depressed. So. <laughs> bring us back. Well, the thing is I got my, um, my forest management plan from our County forester. Uh, I think he did a wonderful job and, uh, this is our place up in New York. And I looked at it and truthfully, it's very, very manageable. He was, uh, very keen to what my plans were and my goals for the forest stand and habitat so that it could be a little bit of both kind of very similar to what Doug's conversation was that we had today. Um, so completely doable. I'm excited to get involved in that as soon as possible and, um, start making those decisions and those changes. So number two, as you well know, on your way home from Detroit, when you were driving, we were up in New York and my wife and I paid off our place. So we have, uh, closed that mortgage and we officially own our farm up in New York. So I've had a pretty darn good week. Well, that was the positive news I needed when I was driving and we were talking about that and we were texting. Actually, you shot me a text the minute you were wrapping up, uh, wrapping up ownership there, which was awesome. And so, yeah, you, you took, uh, you had the good karma. I had the negative karma, but you know what? At the end of the day, I made it home. You closed on your land. It's like, it, it was all good because we had at the NSSF event I was talking about, and this was ringing in my ears the entire time things were going haywire in the airport. Uh, we had a former Navy SEAL who had been wounded in battle. Matter of fact, he was shot right in the face and Ouch. he gave a talk. Yeah. I mean, he, he gave a really awesome talk about what, what a bad day really is. <laughs> and so uh, I need to actually send him a message and tell him that, man, I tell you what, I needed that because that's what kept me sane on my travels. By the way, anybody, if you're flying anytime soon, I'll tell you that airlines are cutting corners anywhere they possibly can. So I just wish you the best of luck and uh, always have a plan B. Hey, I, I teased turkey hunting a second. I want to say these trips have really hurt my turkey hunting time, but right before I left on the trip to Texas, Mike, I did for a second time now, I pretty much walked right under birds that I didn't yeah. know were there when I went over to my place and it kind of messed up the hunt. So uh, we're into turkeys, but like not in a good way sometimes. Yeah, I was, I was totally 180 degrees from mine. I was uh, up in New York because we were up there early. I went and uh, set up where historically I would expect them to be. And I should hear gobbling in that area. Now, didn't hear a thing. I come back up to the house. My wife said, did you hear anything? And I said, no. And she says, Oh, well, I was taking the dog out and there's one gobbling across the street on the neighbor's place. And I said, Oh, well, wonderful. So needless to say, you know, if I, if I had a 50, 50 chance, I'd pick wrong. 
I wonder how many times we've told a turkey story that says it was on the neighbor's place or it was on the other property or it was <laughs> across the river, right? There never, never seemed to be, unless you're like me and then you just get right underneath them. And that's what happened to me. I was trying to sneak down to a particular area I wanted to set up and it was still pitch black out. But what happened was I started down the hill and I uh, spooked a deer. And when the deer ran off, it made a ruckus and it woke that turkey up. And the first thing the turkey did was gobble. And I was like right under it. And I was like, you got to be freaking kidding me. So anyway, try, try again. But again, I, I want to get out there some, start seeing if I can run across some fawns or something like that. And it's just a beautiful time to be out in the woods. So it's not over yet, Mike. We're not giving up. No, of course not. I mean, uh, we we will stick to it until it's time to hang up the the decoys for the season. All right. Well, speaking of time to hang it up, that's what we're going to do here, folks. We really, really appreciate you listening and hope you enjoyed the conversation we had with Doug. Uh, so again, thank you for listening and for your, your support. Uh, join National Deer Association, folks, please. We appreciate that. Promo code podcast. We still, until the guys realize we still have that up and running, take advantage of it and save the five bucks. It's our secret. Uh, so anyway, we'll leave that up there for you. Go join instead of 35 bucks, join for 30 and we appreciate that as well have a good week folks look forward to bringing you the show again next time hey ask nda anything i'm giving away hats like it's nothing all of a sudden so get your questions in and uh we won't answer them next week or the next episode but we'll get them the next one after that so with that folks national deer association where we are united for deer <laughs>